Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that takes a broad look at how cars and transport impact our community. I'm David Brown, and in this program we look at news stories including Mazda may skip the Paris Motor Show, as Ford and Volvo have done already. SUV sales are booming, and not surprisingly, sales of traditional passenger cars are suffering. But Hyundai has upgraded their reasonably sized Elantra model. We went to the launch, and so we will have a chat about how good it is. And here's a hint. It handles very well. We have also been to the launch of the new Audi A4. Not cheap, but gee, there is some technology in that car. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith and Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories including the return of the DeLorean. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to start the program, let's have the news. Mazda is considering not attending this year's Paris Car Show, joining Ford and Volvo, which have already said they will not exhibit at the biannual event. Mazda has said it is difficult to make an impact in an event that is dominated by French domestic car makers. Ford has indicated a broader issue in not attending a major traditional motor show. They are turning their marketing attention to technology events such as the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas and the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, Spain. The rise of technology events is one of the reasons that some traditional motor shows are struggling to get corporate support and public interest. Traditional publicly available GPS systems have been accurate enough to give directions through a street network, but not accurate enough down to the level of lane changes. More accurate systems have been developed for the military and for agricultural applications where ploughing a field to a high level of accuracy is required. Now a team from the University of California has developed a new, more efficient way to process data from the global positioning system to enhance location accuracy from the metre level down to a few centimetres, without increasing the demand for processing power. This could have a huge application for autonomous vehicles. Tesla Motors has produced some very advanced electric cars, but they come at a price. In Australia, a Model S sedan will cost over $100,000. Now, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, has indicated that they will start production of their Model 3 sedan, which will be able to drive 320 kilometres on a single charge in mid or late 2017. And they have a target price of around $35,000. The Model 3 will be 20% smaller than the Model S and is positioned to make Tesla vehicles more attainable for a much larger audience of car buyers. A new system that combines laser-based remote sensing and automatic number plate recognition is being trialled in London and Birmingham in a bid to catch polluting vehicles. Developed by Hager Environmental Technologies, the emissions detecting and reporting system remotely detects and measures infrared absorption of environmentally critical gases coming out of a moving vehicle. The company claims an accuracy rate on a multi-late highway of over 86%, and this increases to 95% on a single-lane highway application. Volvo plans to become the world's first car manufacturer to offer cars without keys from 2017. An application for mobile phones will replace the physical key with a digital key. 
Using the app, people could potentially book and pay for a rental car anywhere in the world and have the digital car key delivered to their phone immediately. On arrival, a customer could simply locate the rental car via GPS, unlock it and drive away without ever going near a car rental desk. Last year, Aston Martin launched the Rapid, an electric concept car. Now they have taken another step towards getting this vehicle into production by signing a memorandum of understanding with Lee Echo, the same group behind American electric car startup Faraday Future. The aim of the new partnership is to develop low emission technology that can be used in a range of vehicles, not only for Aston Martin, but also for Faraday Future and La Echo. For Aston Martin, we can expect an electric Rapide and also an electric version of the automaker's planned SUV. A 1957 racing Ferrari, the 335 Spider Scaletti, has been sold for a world record price of $50 million. The car was driven by a number of moderately well-known racing car drivers, but more especially it was driven by British ace Mike Hawthorne, who went on to become Formula One champion he drove the car in the Le Mans 24 hours, setting the first official lap of the circuit in under four minutes. Despite the huge price tag, the buyer cannot use the vehicle on the roads as it was purely designed for racing. Only four Ferrari 335 Spider Scalettis were ever produced. Incidentally, nine out of ten of the world's most valuable cars sold at auction are Ferraris. And that has been the news. We all know that SUV sales are booming. One of the consequences is that passenger car sales are tending to decline. The biggest segment in the Australian market at the moment is what we would call the small-medium category that includes the two top-selling vehicles, the Toyota Corolla and the Mazda 3. Last year, sales in this segment declined by about 8%. But Hyundai is doing well in the category with their i30 hatch and their Elantra sedan. They have just launched their new range of Elantra vehicles. There is not a lot of choice, but then again, the ones you get are pretty good vehicles. There is one engine, a manual and automatic gearbox, and two option levels, and priced from a recommended retail of 21500 to about 26500 But of course, plus on roads, add more, up to about 10% for that. I went on to launch, and while I was there, I caught up with a good friend, Barry Green, who is the editor of The Road Ahead. Now, that's the magazine of the Queensland motoring organisation, the RACQ. To chat about the new Elantra, Barry joins us on the line. Barry, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Glad to be here. Thanks, David. It's always good to have a chat. I've got to say, we call this, I guess, the sedan, the i30 is the hatchback, but gee, it's not a three-box design sedan, is it? It's quite an elegant-looking car. Yeah, it looks more like uh, a four-door coupe. Um, it's mm. very much a sedan, of course, uh, in terms of its um, what it needs to do, but yeah, from side on particularly, it's got a very nice flowing line, and uh, from low at the front to higher at the rear. And, uh, yeah, it's certainly uh, one of the better-looking small sedans around. A very smooth, almost fastback sort of look. Mm. They call it the fluidic sculpture. I don't think anyone who buys one is going to use that in a dinner party <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's uh, tech-speak, I guess. And, um, 
yeah, each company seems to be developing that, and uh, you know they're very proud of it. It's 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 very much becoming part of their DNA. But yeah, it certainly wouldn't mean much to uh, to most people. <laughs> A single engine, two litre, is that enough power in that? Yeah, look, I, from from my impressions on our drive in Tasmania, um, I, I think so. You've got to remember the market it's it's built for and uh, the the buyer's expectations, and uh, I think it would meet that. It's certainly an improvement on the old 1.8. It's not not massively so. I mean, I think the uh, power's only up about two percent, and the torque that's pulling power uh, up by about eight percent. But yeah, look, it's. Um, yeah, it's a pleasant drive. It gets almost a little wheezy, or it's pushing hard a bit if you are revving it out. You know, for overtaking a vehicle, we took it through some twisty roads where you wanted to get past a vehicle and get past it very quickly. It did it comfortably, but nonetheless, perhaps it's not the most powerful engine around, but still competent enough. Now, if you look at a lot of the videos uh, of Hyundai, they always talk about design for the Australian conditions. They they hit a rough patch a few years ago where the press had a go at them for some of their vehicles. Now, every one of them has a picture of the car driving along a dirt road out in the middle of the bush. Uh, is, is it a good handling car? Does it suit our conditions? And if so, what the heck does that mean? Hyundai and Kia, their kindred cousin, so to speak, have invested heavily uh, with a lot of commitment in setting the cars up for Australian conditions. In the context of um, Hyundai, it's a chap called Dave Potter, who comes from a World Rally Championship background, uh, an absolute guru of setting cars up by way of the springs and the dampers and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, I think, I think you know, like, you've got to watch some of this stuff. Sometimes it's more rhetoric than actual reality. But I think in this case... It's certainly ringing true. I, I, it's a long time since I've driven the old model uh, Elantra, but I'm convinced this new one is a heck of an improvement by the way of the refinement of ride and also what we call NVH, noise, vibration and harshness. I think they've really moved on and um, and it only comes through hard work and commitment. Barry, it's always good to talk to you and I do enjoy it. I've had some lovely conversations both uh, on radio but also uh, on launches and that and this is a great example. Thank you very much for your time. Good. Thank you very much, David. That's Barry Green, the editor of The Road Ahead, which of course is the magazine of the Queensland Motoring Club, the RACQ. Uh, which, of course, uh, like all motoring clubs, actually does great work, not only in terms of road tests, but also in terms of research and, and about the use of the road and what we might need as a good transport system. And you can get a longer interview if you would like to hear more from Barry by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcasting from iTunes or any one of your favourite podcast providers. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. In Australia, there are at least 50 car companies and probably another 15 truck companies as well, 65 or more different brands. Each one of those brands has a lot of nameplates. There are probably about 400 nameplates. And I don't mean each model. Something like a Commodore is just one nameplate. It has variations within it, but a nameplate, is that's one. 
a Falcon is another. So there are heaps and heaps of cars, different cars out there. Well, this week, I've been to a launch of a Hyundai. There's also been a launch of a Lexus and one uh, an announcement from Subaru and the launch of another model, a new and updated model from Audi. How can we get to them all? Well, we have great friends of the program like Rob Fraser from anyauto.com.au, a great website, and he's been to the Audi launch. I know nothing about it, but he's on the line. He's going to tell us all. Rob, thank you very much for your time. Uh, You're welcome, David. It has been a busy week. What is the Audi that they uh, launched? They've launched the ninth generation Audi A4, which is in the compact executive class. The Audi A4 has been around in one sort of format or another since 1995, so a bit over 20 years. And they've actually been, been had a, an offering in this segment of the market since way back 1974. So there's a long history there of Audi in this particular compact executive class. It's a car that is not super large and, and hugely expensive. It's a way of getting into the Audi brand, brand a bit like an AB or C class of Mercedes or other uh, brands like that that uh, get you the name but comes with some good quality as well. Is, is that where it fits into the market? Oh, absolutely. It's a direct competitor for the BMW 3 Series and the Mercedes-Benz C-Class. And uh, I have to say, after spending a couple of days driving, my first impressions are that it has actually raised the bar and and the others are now starting to play catch-up a bit. Oh, really? That's interesting, because the others aren't bad. The C-Class Mercedes has uh, received high praise. Uh, the BMW 3 Series has done uh, remarkably well for that brand. So wh- what can they do, or more particularly, what have they done? I think what they have done, I mean, like all of us, as we get a little bit older, we get a little bit bigger, and, and this car itself is, is about 25 millimetres longer than the previous model, and it's a little bit wider but no higher. So it takes on a very squat sort of appeal. And what they've done is introduced just unbelievable amounts of technology into the car. We could sit here for over an hour and just talk about how much technology is put into the car. And I think, to be honest, most people really don't understand what's behind it or probably have an interest in behind it. But what they do like is how that technology makes their driving experience more pleasurable and easy. And that's what Audi have done very well with this vehicle. So we've talked about technology and making more efficient, more powerful engines, more gears in the gearbox and so on. But, you know, the real technology, we did a news story about Ford not going to the Paris Motor Show. They're going to concentrate on technology shows. It's a case of a much more obvious or more direct feeling and benefit to you that this sort of technology brings about. So what what are some of the more important things that come to your mind about the new Audi? Well, look, I've actually had a bit of a think about this and tried to pick out just some of the highlights amongst the, the, the multitude of, of new pieces they've brought in. And, and I think technology, for technology's sake, is probably a waste of time, but technology for increased safety and increased versatility is, is, is a great benefit. But just as an example, they've now developed headlights that differentiate between city and motorway driving. So if it's in the city, it'll, it'll drop the, the low beam down further. If it's on the motorway, the low beam will actually sit up higher. So you don't have to actually put it on high beam. If you are on high beam, it will actually detect a vehicle in front of you and dull the lights where that particular vehicle is, but still give you the high beam either side of that vehicle so you can still see further ahead. 
this fascinating technology. It's a perception, it's a feeling in many ways, but gee, that's a lot of what it's about. I sense from what you're saying there, Rob, that uh, you've got the feeling. Oh, look, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the two days, to be honest. Testing the number of vehicles that we do, David, you, you, sort of, you tend to sort of look at them very coldly and clinically, but this, this car actually had personality and it made the driving experience fun. Rob, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. That's Rob Fraser from anyauto.com.au talking about the new Audi A4, the ninth version of that car they've had over a long period of time and haven't they developed it far? And you can hear a longer version of that interview by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or going to a podcast at iTunes or your favourite podcast supplier. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. And now it's time for some quirky news. And again, I'm joined by Errol Smith and Brian Smith. Gentlemen, back to the future. Errol, I think you can start us with a story. Mm. Well, if you've ever wanted to go back in time to 1982, DeLorean is going to let you. They're going back to the future and restarting production again of its iconic Gullwing sports car. But it's the same car as it was then because they still have all the same bits they never sold them all originally when it, when DMC went bust. Expect to pay, though, the rather futuristic sum of about 100000 US for one, depending on which engine you get. Is this back to the future, or is it just cashing in on uh, Well, they were never a good car, car were they? No, no. They were no. A well, I, car. I like the look of them. I just thought they had a simple design. Well, they were distinctive because they had a stainless steel body that was unpainted. Mm. Gullwing steel shell, yeah, and they had the gullwing doors, yeah, and they broke down. And of course, nobody would know that they existed ex- except for you know the automotive movie. historians. If it wasn't for the Back to the Future movie franchise, of course, the, the sort of kit cars of you, know, you can buy old cars that have you know you can buy an old Jaguar C type. It's just that it was never built by the factory. It's now built by Monster, possibly with decent brakes and things in it. Mm. Yeah, electricals. But they're not mm, doing electricals. that in this case. <laughs> Do you mean good electricals or actual electricals? Actual electricals. <laughs> so yeah. the company that's going to make them has a bunch of the um, the real cars, don't they? Yeah, they've got original parts that weren't weren't sold, mm. including body shells and engines and the whole bit. So they're just going to chuck them together and start selling them again. Apparently, there's been some obscure changes in U.S. Uh, automotive regulations that basically allow them to sell a car that wouldn't meet modern specs in any way. Um, so yeah, they sort of uh, they sort of slip through the gate a bit. Yeah, it's interesting. It is road. a Back to the Future in terms of you know like about twenty years, isn't it? So oh, yeah. uh, whether people will will actually it's buy 30, them and drive them. Thirty years, yeah, yeah. since the movie. Oh, it's yeah. a whole whole principle of having an, a a historic car. It's got nothing to do with modern technology, even though, of course, it was meant to be a car of the future and powered by special stuff and so on. It's it's not that at all. It is a, an image of a time, of a movie, of a of a culture, of mm. a 
pop mm. icon. They, they reckon they've got enough parts to, to make about 300 replica cars. And the first one will be on the road by 2017. Where'd they keep all that stuff? There's a lot of space in the US, David. But, well, Someone's got a really big shed out the back. So the only thing is, everyone who owns a genuine new, you know, bought new DeLorean is now quaking in their, their boots because spare parts are not going to be available. Yeah, I mean, why, why didn't DeLorean sell all the parts to pay creditors when they went bust? Well, I was going to say, I presume once they make some profits, they'll pay back the British government and other creditors. <laughs> Good idea. Actually, you know, when BMC packed it up in Australia, someone made an absolute killing. He bought every one of those starter motors for about, you know, uh, 10 bob each or something or other. And then uh, BMC suddenly realised that they actually had to keep spare parts and had to buy them back off them for about <laughs> 5 or 10 pounds or something. Hmm. Uh, now, here's the story. I love the fact that what is common sense... Uh, is not always right. And in transport, there are some classic examples. Teaching young people to advance driver training proved to be a disaster. It did not only not do any good, it actually made them more dangerous. Telling kids passionately, you could die when you drive on the road, particularly telling young boys seems like a good idea, didn't do a thing. Didn't change them at all. Some further research showed that if they said you could kill your friend, that did prove effective. But the double-decker trains are said to carry a lot more people. Yes, but you can't get them on and off at stations. So the capacity of a rail line, in some people's opinion, is better if if you have single-decker trains. I just like the idea that something that might seem logical to to do with transport isn't true, and now they've Hmm. proved that if you're on escalators and you're walking up them, so you're adding to the effort of the escalator, that, in fact, does not increase capacity. Brian, is, you're, a, you're a transport planner. Is this... Um... This is so unintuitive, isn't it, David? Yes. That, uh, you know, the, the, the capacity of the, of the escalator is, is driven by a lot of things, and one of the biggest elements is people's reluctance to stand close to other people. And so, you know, people on escalators, even when they're standing on the escalator, will leave... Uh, at least one step between them and the person in front and, and you know, they, they really don't like to squeeze up. So if, in my view has been that having one uh, lane moving is, uh, is more effective, that uh, it, particularly it's good at clearing the queue at the end of the escalator uh, as people move off. So um, it, just, it seems unintuitive, but I'd, I'd love to see um, the, the study results to try and understand how they've modelled this. But, uh, you know, certainly if you... If you get people to stand on every step, um, then, yes, you'll be able to shift a lot of people. But I, I'm just not sure human behaviour will accord terribly well with, uh, with this idea. Yeah, people to actually do it is, is another thing altogether. Of course, Brian, the, if you increase the speed of traffic... Uh, over a particular threshold, you don't increase the capacity, you don't increase the number of cars that get down the road for that similar reasons. Mm, Headway. Spread out, spread out more, yeah. Mm. Yes, yeah. So they need it, more space between them. It doesn't matter how fast they're passing you. If there are big gaps between cars, then you're getting less, peop- less cars, less vehicles down the road. Indeed. And so that's why uh, Sydney Council said they're going to lower the speed limit in order to c- increase... Improved capacity. Mm. Uh, which yeah, I think so. was a bit spurious because bugger all we're getting through. 
you know, and, yes. and, and you can't decrease it to zero. You know, there is, uh, what's the speed? Some say it's 80. I think, I think Brian, you more talk about 56 kilometres. Yeah, I think it's something like that, which gives you the, because of the close headways, it gives you the best throughput. Mm. Uh, now, Errol, I think you have a story for us. Uh, Well, uh, police in Norfolk have been on a long-distance police chase with speeds not exceeding 50 kilometres an hour. Crossing two counties, a stolen tractor kept police at bay for a couple of hours, taking six patrol cars and a helicopter to pursue the meagre farm equipment worth not much more than about £40,000. And how did it end? When the uh, driver gave up and abandoned the tractor is it is it worth the worth the investment to pursue a bit of farm equipment david what do you think I, I, it doesn't speak of the great competence of not being able to stop a tractor well the other question is what are you going to do once you get the helicopter over it I, mm. but i guess the, the tractor it? can travel cross country in a oh. way that many police cars oh. can't Mm. And I wondered about that. I wondered whether uh, you know it was a bit of a cross-country chase it, through hedges and such like, where uh, uh, you know it might be difficult for the police to first of all pursue it, but also to then work out based on the roads that are available where they could intercept it. Uh, it just it seems to be the helicopter is uh, pretty impotent. They need to have uh, some kind of um, uh, device on there to slow it down. You know, perhaps uh, you know they could drop. Um, uh, corn in front of it and uh, in hopes the driver would immediately begin ploughing or something like that. <laughs> Some hay bales. Yeah. <laughs> he, he almost crashed into a house when he reached a dead end. I've got to say, he's probably not a great driver if he's going to run out of control in a tractor that can only do 50 kilometres an hour. He's probably lucky he didn't roll on top of him. That's how a lot of farmers get killed. Get killed. Mm, uh, indeed. And finally, Brian, I, I, uh, there's a story you have for us. Certainly, David. This is a, uh, a horrifying dairy-related violence story. So, uh, you know, if you've got any small children, please send them into another room. So um, if you want to see what, uh, what America would look like, I suppose, if there were no guns uh, and the criminals only had access to things like yogurt, um, then uh, the, the West Country uh, town of Sherbourne in Dorset in England is the model you want to aim for. Errol Smith and Brian Smith, thank you for your time. You're welcome, David. And you can hear a longer version of that uh, interview. And you can hear a longer version of the quirky news, including the story of a police helicopter chase trying to track down a tractor. Go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or you can hear it podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcast supplier. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, Barry Green, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.